Uh, if you have your Bible with you, I'm excited this morning because we are beginning a new series. I always like when one series ends and move on to a new series and just what God has placed before us as a church. Uh, if you have your Bibles, your scriptures, I encourage you to find the book of Revelation. Uh, we are going to be in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 for the next seven weeks as we're going to be looking at the seven churches uh, to which this letter is directed to. And we're going to be walking through that and drawing out. Um, here's one thing we can just do away with. We are not going to say, okay, Harvest Hill is this church. Harvest Hill is that church. Harvest Hill isn't that church. What we're going to do is we're going to be learning what Jesus is saying to each one of these churches, um, the things they're doing well and the things that they need to correct um, as we walk through this and we can take it into our own life individually and then put it collectively as a church. So again, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be focusing on the church of Ephesus this morning, which begins in verse 1 and runs through verse 7. As we begin this series, I think a good place to start, excuse me for a second, a good place to start would be with a definition of what church is, because we can have some strange definitions of what church may be or may not be. It is not a physical location, according to Scripture. It is not a place to be found by the post office. There are obviously physical churches and physical gatherings, but the word for church in the New Testament, the Greek word is ecclesia. It's spelled E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A, if you want to spell it in English, though it doesn't look like that at all in Greek. Um, the word for church, ecclesia, can only be found in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, out of all the Gospels. And it's found predominantly throughout the rest of the New Testament, Acts and into the letters, but only twice in the Gospel of Matthew and in two different places. The, one place is chapter 18, in which Jesus is giving instruction concerning accountability and discipline that the church is to take when someone is acting outside of the will of God. The other place is in Matthew chapter 16 and immediately follows Peter's confession of Jesus Christ when he says that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, to which, P to which Jesus responds to Peter that on this rock, speaking of Peter's confession, not Peter's play on the word or name rock, but on this rock, the son of the living God, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The Bible defines church as the bride of Christ. Meaning if we take the bride and what a bride is in scripture, meaning that the church is to be one with Christ and a helper to Christ. The Bible also defines the church as the body of Christ. Meaning the church, the gathering of God's people is to be the representation of Christ into this world. And that church is founded and solidified and empowered by the testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Scripture promises us, promises us that there is nothing greater than the power of what the church stands for, what the church preaches, and what the church represents in this world. And I think sometimes as believers, we don't think that way about the church. We don't think the church is something empowered and something that holds power that nothing in this world can stand against. But that is exactly what Jesus said the church is going to be when it professes he is the Christ, the Son, and the living God. The word church means a local assembly or universal body of individuals who bear allegiance to Jesus Christ. It comes from two words which comes together to mean to call out of. 
So according to the Bible, though we say, well, we're going to church this morning, what we are saying is we're going to a place where God has called people out of this world so that they in turn can call people out of this world. So God has called us out of this world into his relationship, into his children as heirs to his kingdom so that we might in turn as the church, the collective body of God's people, call out to the world so they may come to know him. This is gospel advancement. This is what the kingdom of God is about. This is what the church is about. It's not about putting on different things throughout the the year. It's not about filling up a calendar. It's about God's people coming together who have been called out by God so we may call out to the world so others can know God. So we're going to pick up our scriptures as we jump into the church of Ephesus. We're going to walk through this. Uh, Beginning in verse 1, the word of the Lord says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you that you have just showered us with your grace and mercy this morning. I thank you, just a reminder in my heart, just how much you love us and what you've done for us. And Lord, we, we, we sing out to you to be the king of our heart. And I pray that is what happens as we open your word, that your spirit draws us in your presence. We realize your holiness and your glory and that your kingdom and will will be done in each and every individual's life here this morning. I thank you for what you are continuing to do at Harvest Hill, how you're continuing to transform and mold us into the church you need us to be individually and together as a body. Lord, do do your good work in us this morning. Strengthen us in our faith. Open up the scriptures as you did with your apostles. Bless us with that. Father, we may know your word. We may hear from you, not from a, a preacher or a pastor, but Lord, we know we have heard from you and your spirit speaking to our hearts. I thank you for what's going to happen here this morning. We, we pray, Lord, that you soften our hearts so we may be responsive to what you lay before us. Please forgive us if we failed you in any way. And give us the strength for when the tempter comes to try to pull us away from your presence in this moment. And pray us all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, uh, Ephesus. Uh, again, chapter two, we're going to really just be focusing on these seven verses. We're going to walk through and we're going to draw some stuff out. But Ephesus should sound familiar if you have a little bit of backing with the Bible. It is Ephesus, the church in Ephesus, that is, that is believed to be founded by the Apostle Peter. 
later solidified by the Apostle Paul. You can read in Acts chapter 19 and in Acts chapter 20 where Paul comes into Ephesus and has this encouraging and, and, and difficult encounter. And then when he leaves in chapter 20, which is a heartbreaking, we're told in Scripture that in Ephesus and with this church, this body of believers, Paul spent roughly three years with them, which was his longest stay at any body in any gathering of people recorded in the book of Acts. It is Ephesus to which Paul writes the letter that we have known as Ephesians. It's to this church. Uh, it is Ephesus to which the Apostle John is believed to have pastored this church at one point in time. And it's also church tradition that while John was pastoring this church, he wrote the gospel that we have known as the Gospel of John. Finally, it is the church of Ephesus to which Paul sends Timothy to go to, to offer pastoral leadership to it. And we have letters 1st and 2nd Timothy, which is while, while P, or Timothy is pastoring that church. So there's a lot of biblical material that surrounds the church of Ephesus. And the reason Ephesus might be so uh, prominent in the Bible and so important because it was a very important city within the Roman Empire. It was uh, one of the, the main cities within the Roman province of Asia. It was set aside the Aegean Sea. If you have a, a Bible of any sort that, that has a map in the back, you can go and see Ephesus along the Aegean Sea, making it a port city which meant that travelers and trade would come in and out uh, of Ephesus every single day. It's, it's estimated that over 250,000 people lived in this city uh, while the church was beginning, while the church was expanding. Uh, eventually, Ephesus would be known as the gateway to Rome and eventually turned to the highway of martyrs. Um, it would be the city of Ephesus in which Rome would use it as its port city to bring Christians in from Asia. They would stay there until they could ship them to Rome, in which they would feed them to the lions and the Colosseum as entertainment. But Jesus is turning the Apostle Paul to Ephesus because he has a word to say to them. There were other churches that were developed. You can find them in the book of Acts, and obviously there's six more we're going to deal with here. But these churches beginning in Ephesus and ending in Laodicea are not mentioned in you know, righteousness compared to wickedness. Again, if you would have a map, Ephesus would be along the Aegean Sea. If you travel north and then you make a small circle all around, you find this geographical map that, that Jesus is taking, starting at Ephesus and just making a circle around until it comes back in Laodicea, just south of Ephesus. Now, there are seven churches here mentioned in Revelation. We are not going to deal a whole lot with the symbolism of Revelation, so you can, uh, now, if you want to. Um, there is very little in dealing with the seven churches here that pertains to symbolism. What is dealt is the number seven stands for completeness or perfection. So though Jesus is directing his attention or directing the Apostle Paul to these seven churches, what he's ultimately doing, according to the Word of God, is he's directing his statements to the universal church. See, in the eyes of God, there's not Southern Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, Catholic, Protestant, assembly, whatever. In the eyes of God, there is only one church. There's only one body. Now, we may classify as different names. We find that in Scripture. People classified them as a church based upon the city they lived in. But God sees that we are one body in Christ, individually one of another. One of another. And so there may be different denominations and different doctrinal views including within the same denomination. But in the eyes of God, God looks upon the earth and sees one church. He sees one body of people he has called out of this world so they may call out to the world. And we, again, we may give ourselves different names. But again, Ephesus was a port city. 
seeing thousands of people coming in and out. Uh, the thing about Ephesus is it no longer stands today. It has been completely destroyed. It's ruined. Matter of fact, it once was a port city. You can no longer get uh, to where the ruins of Ephesus remain uh, now by boat safely um, because of all the destruction that has happened. But it is still known as the place where the Temple of Diana or Artemis once was, which is one of the seven wonders of the world. As we walk through these seven churches, here's this format we're going to see. Each church begins with an introduction of Christ's authority. Here in chapter 2, that's verse 1. Then it begins with a declaration of Christ's understanding. We find similar words throughout these churches, verse 2 and 3 of chapter 2. Christ says, I know, and I know. We find that throughout the rest of the churches as well. Then there's a discipline through Christ's wisdom. This is where Christ says for us today in verse 4, I have this against you. There's a call to action in response to Christ's revelation. And finally, the result of the correct response to Christ. So in Verse 1 of chapter 2, we have the declaration or the introduction of Christ's authority. He's speaking to the church of Ephesus, and we notice that it is directed to the angel of the church. The word angel there in Scripture means messenger. This is not a word that is referring to heavenly beings at this point in time. What the word angel or messenger is speaking to is to the leader, pastor, or elder of that particular church. So though the series may be called Dear Church, it, it might be even be able to say it's Dear Pastor because that pastor, leader, elder is to be leading the church to where Christ needs the church to be. But in verse 2, we do have some symbolism that we need to deal with because it speaks about the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands. Well, if you rewind your Bible back to chapter 1 and look in verse 20, Jesus defines what these seven stars and seven golden lampstands are. The end of verse 20, it says, the seven stars are the angels, so they are the messengers, the preachers, the elders of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So Jesus is speaking about himself, declaring who he is, and as we walk through these seven churches, every introduction to each church is to take us back to chapter 1 to some declaration of Jesus Christ's holiness, his power, and his authority. And here in Ephesus, it's this symbolism in which Jesus holds the messenger. What that means is he controls the messenger. He controls the preacher. He controls the pastor, controls the elder. He controls the leaders of the church. At least that is what the church is supposed to be. That Jesus Christ is in full authority of the leader of that church because the church cannot be who Christ needs it to be unless the leaders of the church are being led by Jesus and controlled by Jesus. You look about the seven golden lampstands and we see that he is walking among the seven golden lampstands, which lets us know that Jesus Christ, though sitting at the right hand of the Father at this very moment, the image here in Revelation is that Jesus' presence is in this place. And we find this with the churches that are doing well and the churches that aren't doing well. There's three types of churches here of the seven. Ephesus is a church that receives an approval this I know, this I know, and then a rebuke. This I have against you. There's another church that has the same way. Then there's churches that only receive approval, and there's churches that only receive rebuke. But the wording here in verse 1 is that Jesus, despite what, where the church is, is in the midst of the church. So we are in the presence of the God who died for us, rose again, and saved us by our salvation in Him. This isn't just a room we sit in and seats. We're in the presence of God. 
That's church. And it's because Jesus is in the presence of the church, he's able to say this in verse 2 and 3, that I know. And that's significant. Because Jesus is not declaring to the church, I have heard. That's different, isn't it? From I know to I, I heard about this. I heard someone say, but Jesus says, I know. I personally know the welfare. I personally know the spiritual place of this church. I personally know the heart of this church. See, we can put on all the shows. We can do all the things, all the ministries. But Jesus, God, who will judge us as his church, his representation, knows exactly where we are individually and corporately as a body. We will not fool him. We won't. And what this image here in verse 1 is telling us about Jesus Christ is that this is my church. The church of Ephesus is mine. The church of Smyrna is mine. The church of Pergamum is mine. Theotira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, all these churches, they're mine. And Harvest Hill is Christ. It's not Pastor Mike's. It's not a family within a church. This church belongs to Jesus. It's not a ministry team or a deacon body or elders. This is Jesus' church. And if we ever get to the point where we say, well, you know, my family, we were here when it all began and we didn't do things like that when we were here, then we've put it back upon us that this is, this is my church. I own this church. I have the right to say what happens and what doesn't happen in this church. But the image here in Revelation is Jesus is the full owner of this church. We may have our name on the bills. We praise the Lord. He gives us, gives us the money to pay for the bills. So we're going to walk through this and what Jesus said. He first begins by saying, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. How you, Verse 2, you cannot bear with those who are evil. The word evil there means those who are good for nothing. Those who, who are nominal Christians, those who claim Christ but look nothing like Christ, I know you cannot bear with those. You do not tolerate those good-for-nothing Christians that, that look nothing like me. You have tested those who call themselves apostles. That word apostle means those who, are, who claim to be commissioned by me, who claim to have the authority of me upon them, who come out with these titles that we give them prestigious roles and, and we usher them into positions and leadership in the church. The church of Ephesus had these men come in and say, we're apostles. We've been authorized and commissioned by Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I know that, you, that those who call them are not, and you, you found them to be false. When we come and look at the church of Ephesus, I think if we were looking for a church in this day and age in Asia, this would be the write-up. The church of Ephesus is a courageous, hardworking church that is theologically sound and devoted to the truth of God's word. We are a church that does not support any false teachings of the word of God. And as a church, we cling only to the word of God and continuously seek purity in our doctrine and orthodoxy. Now, if we were to read that, we'd probably be like, wow, that's, that's a biblical church. They are courageous for the gospel. They're hardworking. They're theologically sound. They're devoted to God's word. They have no tolerance for a false gospel or false teacher, and they hold to a purity of doctrine and church practices. On the outside, looking in, this church looks like a healthy church, but notice Jesus says, I have this against you. But what the church of Ephesus had is that they were doctrinally sound, and they were diligently steadfast. 
The church of Ephesus knew the word of God. That made them doctrinally sound. They were able to distinguish genuine authority over an individual's life as opposed to counterfeit. So when individuals came in claiming that they were apostles, the church of Ephesus was able to take the word of God and measure that person up. Do you actually measure up to the word of God and what an apostle is or what a believer is? Do you measure up to what God says you should look like? They were able to put an individual under the microscope of God's word and declare whether they were who they say they were or not. And for those who weren't, who claimed some sort of leadership or apostleship, they had nothing to do with them. They didn't allow them to the church. They, they had a purity of the church they wanted to keep. And we might think, well, that, that wouldn't be so hard. It would be so hard to, to notice that someone is not who they say they were, but... How many times have you heard someone say that they're a preacher and you automatically put them on a pedestal of holiness? How many times you heard someone say that they're a missionary or I just got back from a mission trip? Like, wow, you're so sacrificial, so spiritual. How many times have you looked at a preacher's kid and think, well, they're the next Great pastor. They, they must know their Bible and they must do everything correctly. And I know growing up as a preacher's kid, that was the, the thought that I had. You know, I came out of the womb with a, a doctorate. I, I, I would know all the answers in Sunday school. I would always act the way you were supposed to act in public and at church. And everyone would be like, oh, he's such a good preacher's kid. Man, I had him fooled. Had him fooled. But what we can do is we can hear titles of individuals that are pastor, they're a preacher, they're a conference speaker, they're a Christian author, they're a Christian musician, they're whatever. And we can automatically put them up onto a pedestal of holiness. The church of Ephesus would not do that. And this Jesus approves them of. He approves them of not allowing someone to come in and claim a title without first testing them, examining their life. Imagine that they took the words of Paul seriously in Acts chapter 20 when Paul told them as they were getting ready to leave, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained by his own blood. Blood, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. And from among yourselves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Imagine they built this wall of protection of holiness around the church because of Paul's instructions. Perhaps Timothy preached some of the words that Paul wrote to him in 2 Timothy chapter 4 where Paul tells Timothy, you need to preach the word. You need to be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears, they will accumulate themselves teachers to suit their own passions will turn away from listening to truth and wander off to myths. I wonder if Timothy shared that letter that he received from Paul, the church of Ephesus heard and said, not this church. We're not going to wander off. We're not going to have itching ears. We're going to make sure we stay to the word of God. And anybody who comes into this church, we're going to make sure they're in the word of God and they can't stay. They're going to be out of here. I wonder if, if they heard Timothy preach, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing this you will save both yourself and your hearers. 
The church of Ephesus was so protective. They understood that the church was a household of God and a pillar of truth. They understood that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's what Paul wrote them in Ephesians chapter 3. See, the church of Ephesus, and we just begin this, they, they guarded the sanctity and holiness of God's bride through the word of God. And how many of us here would not want to be a part of church like that. They had a reverence to the word of God. They had a reverence to those who represented God. They had a reverence that, that they didn't just jump to their own opinion or their own judgments. They went to the word of God and they measured, examined, they tested and tried each and every individual to make sure that they were a representation of Jesus Christ. How many of us would love to be a part of that sort of church? They just weren't going through the motions. They, they had a, a strict team in place, a strict accountability team in place. The church of Ephesus understood that it is not the church or the word of God that conforms to the world, but God calls the world to conform to his word and into his church. God has called us as Harvest Hill not to conform to the patterns of this world, but that we would preach the word of God so people can conform to his word. And this is why Jesus has to tell them in verse 3, that I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. Notice the words Jesus used in their approval. Your works, your toil, your patient endurance. You, you don't bear with those who are of evil. You have tested. You're enduring patiently. You're bearing up for my name's sake. You've not grown weary. What he's declaring to them is you are living such a life of holiness of the church and you're keeping yourself holy and I know this is hard. Because as a church, when we say we're going to stand for the word of God, and we're going to present the Word of God. We're going to live by the Word of God to the best, very best of our ability. Here's what's going to happen. We are going to push those who are more attached to the world away. The church of Ephesus, they were enduring patiently. Not only were they pushing some people away, but there are people outside of the church that they had probably kicked out because they claimed to be apostles. People outside of the church were persecuting them. But they decided that they don't care if they're a politically correct church. They're going to be a God-driven church. And when we take that stance, it's going to cause friction. If you don't believe me, just rewind a couple years ago. Remember when the Supreme Court decided they were going to define what marriage was? Remember when they decided what was going to be a, a, a relationship and what wasn't going to be a relationship on tax forms? In the news, churches began to go through their church constitution and make sure they had things in place in case someone came in and, and they were homosexual and, and make sure that we can say, okay, well, we can't do those sort of weddings. And there were businesses. Remember, there were businesses that stood up and said, we're not going to do that because we do not believe in associating or, or, or supporting that sort of lifestyle. And what happened to those businesses? A lot of them closed. And what you don't see in the news because it's so focused on businesses that there were a lot of churches that closed in the midst of that Supreme Court ruling on defining what marriage was because there were churches that took a stance and they got sued and they couldn't cover the, the, the fees, the legal fees. 
When we stand for the word of God, we have to understand that we are going to cause friction in the world. But the church of Ephesus was a church that decided we don't care if we're not politically correct because we belong to God. He is our master. He is our Lord and our Savior. So we're going to stand for the word of God. We're going to die on this hill of holiness. And the church doesn't like that. But what we can learn about this church, we can be diligently steadfast and persevere and we can have sound doctrine. We can protect our hearts, our minds, our ears and, and we can protect our families. We can build a protection around us in our household through the word of God. But we have to be aware that there are going to be people that are not going to like it. And then we also have to be aware that there are going to be churches that aren't going to do it. There are going to be churches more interested in titles, fanfare, massive gatherings, glamour, money, acceptance by others, or classifications that if we took the Word of God and we compared it to what they were standing for and what they were preaching, we would say, that is not a church. That is not something that is controlled by God, led by God, and Jesus Christ's presence is there. We have to be very careful. Just because a book is in a Christian bookstore doesn't mean it's a Bible author. Just because a CD is in a Christian bookstore does not mean it is a biblically worship album. And just because you may go to Walmart or some other store and they have their Christian section doesn't mean everything in that section is a God-fearing individual or God-fearing material. And just because someone claims to be a preacher and may have millions of dollars at hand does not mean they are a man or woman of God. Just this last week in USA Today, there's a, a story about a televangelist, and I'll leave him nameless. You can Google later if it drives you nuts. This televangelist was led by God, his word, that he needed, God told him he needed to have a $54 million private jet plane and that his ministry that he was over should support him in purchasing this plane. The preacher goes on to say that if Jesus, this is his words, okay, I'm, I'm gonna, if Jesus was physically here on earth today, he wouldn't be riding a donkey. He'd be in an airplane preaching the gospel all over the world. And this televangelist, goes on to say that God told him he needed this plane and that God's revelation concerning this plane, and here's the quote, is one of the greatest statements the Lord has ever told me. Greatest statements. Not justification. Not salvation by faith. Not grace. Not the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Not the calling to be a preacher is a representation of the word of God to lead God's people. But the greatest statement God has ever told this televangelist is that he should have a Falcon S7X private jet plane worth $54 million new. If he were to find it used, he could get it as little as $20 million. This private jet plane would be on top of three private jet planes he already owns. 
And he says that this is what he says, because the, the person writing the article says, uh, asked him about it. And he says, it's not about possessions. It's about priorities. And he goes on in the paper. And this, the, I, this one thing I liked about this article, because I know there's a lot of Christian bashing out there and you got to filter through that. But the writer of the article actually posted a link to a video to which this televangelist and his other televangelists, who, by the way, are prosperity preaching preachers, okay? That's not the gospel. They're sitting at the table. No one is interviewing them except each other. They've got a Bible. You can tell they each have a Bible in front of them. And they're talking, and they get on the conversation about their private jet planes. And this is what they say, unfiltered. It's not filtered by anybody. These two men sitting at the table with God's Word in front of them. And this is what they say. I love flying on my private jet plane because when I fly commercial, I find it aggravating and irritating when people want to come up and talk to me and pray with me or sometimes say hello. That's what they said. And we can laugh and we can shake our head, but here's the thing. There are millions of people sending money to these individuals who call themselves preachers and are supporting them financially. And you may be someone in here, may not support this particular preacher, but you may be supporting another preacher who preaches the same thing and you are supporting his worldly passion. Ephesus would have nothing to do with these sort of people. They would see right through them. They would understand that their Jesus, their Christ, didn't avoid crowds unless he was getting away to be with his father in prayer. They would understand that Jesus Christ did more in three years in a very small portion of the world that impacted the entire world without a jet plane, without a million-dollar budget, and with only 12 men, one of which left him. They would understand, okay, I don't need anything the world offers me because I have everything God has already given me for godliness in this life God has called me to. But there are people, and I believe the world is seeing these individuals, because that has to be why I made the USA Today. They're seeing these individuals title themselves Christians and preachers, and what do we do? We do exactly what we just did. It's time to raise the level of accountability. I'm not saying we're perfect. I'm not saying we've got it all right. But what I am saying is, it is obviously a disgusting thing in the eyes of God for a church to conform to the word rather to the world rather than to the world. Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, your patience, I know your endurance. And the Bible says that individuals like this are false prophets, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles for Christ. And no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. And their end will correspond with their deeds. But here's the thing. Jesus says, I know, I know, I know. But look in verse 4. The church of Ephesus was doctrinally sound. They were steadfast. They were persevering, standing for the word of God. But Jesus says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. So here we have this doctrinally sound church, this church that is persevering for the word of God, but here's the reality that Jesus rebukes them for. They were devotionally shallow. 
They knew the Word of God. They had doctrine. They were persevering for the Word of God, but they were devotionally shallow. In Romans chapter 1, Paul lays out the wrath of God and how the wrath of God is being revealed and no man without excuse and God hands people over to their sinfulness and wickedness and you think, all right, Paul's going to really lay it on them. He's going to really hammer it down. But after you get through the wrath of God at the end of chapter 1, the very first thing that Paul's led to write in chapter 2 is this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. See, we must remain in the Word of God. We must allow the Word of God to lead us and guide us. The Scripture says, Your Word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my, fa- in, into my path. In this church in Ephesus, they were doctrinally sound. They were allowing the Word of God to, to lead them. But the reality is they were so devotionally shallow that they could not see what Jesus tells them in verse 5. Remember where you have fallen. They had forgotten that they were sinners in need of God's grace, just like the sinners that were trying to come into their church. They had forgotten that it wasn't anything that they had done to obtain the salvation, but it was a gift of God. They had forgotten what Paul had written to them in the letter we know as Ephesians, that is, by grace and faith alone to which you are saved. They had forgotten these things, and instead of being a church that was calling out to the world, they became a church that was now a country club, sounded on good Bible studies and good Bible teaching, but wanting nothing to do with the world around them. They had forgotten their first love. So they had all this stuff going for them, but Jesus' rebuke is that you've forgotten your first love. And what does 1 Corinthians tell us about love? We can do all these things. We can make mountains move. We can have faith. We can even be a martyr and we can die for that faith. But if we don't have love, we have nothing. We have nothing. Here's this church that had these most likely great studies in the Bible and and they were standing for the word of God. But here's what they forgot. They forgot to savor God. They had studies They had sound doctrine. They were standing for God, but they forgot to savor God. The Bible tells us in Psalm 34, 8, that taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. Exclamation point, by the way. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 5 says, The goodness of the word of God 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3 says that the Lord is good. The church of Ephesus had forgotten that the Lord is good, His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. So how can we keep, how can we be sound doctrinally, standing for the Word of God, but at the same point in time not become so hard? Because there are churches that do this. We don't do that around here. We only use one translation of the Bible. We only, we can go on and on and on and on. So how can we be sound doctrine? Because this is what Christ approves of, but not devotionally shallow. The Bible reveals here because Jesus says, you know, you've got these works and then he, 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 reprimands them for other works that they're doing, that there are godly works and ungodly works. And Jesus calls them in verse 5, they remember where you have fallen, repent and do the works. Here's the thing. As a church, 
And when we speak about a church, we have to go into individuals. As an individual, we have to understand this. I do not make myself righteous. So there is no room in my proclamation of Jesus Christ about my self-righteousness. It is not, hey, look what I've done or look what I'm doing. It's not, hey, look what Harvest Hill is doing. It's look what God is doing. Look what Jesus has done in me. Look what God is continuing to do in me. Look how God is continuing to transform me. And so therefore, we don't become a pillar of self-righteousness, but we become a proclaimer of the righteousness of God that has been given to us. So Jesus comes to his church and he says, look, you need to remember, you need to repent and you need to react. There in verse five, remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and then do the works you did at first. So he's not condemning all works, just the works they're doing right now. He's saying, you need to remember, you need to react, you need to repent. And maybe our prayer this morning individually and as a church, because, man, it, I'll just be honest, sometimes you just get into the ministry routine, you know? You know what's going to happen when I'm done or we're done here this morning? You know where my mind's going to start going? Next Sunday. I'm going to come in here Monday morning. I'm going to do the exact same thing I did last Monday morning. I'm going to read all my books and do all my reading and write all my notes. And then I'm going to pile it all together. And I'm going to tell Jamie, I just don't know where I'm going to go with this. We have it almost every week, right? I mean, and so you get into this routine. As a church, we can do the routine. We can do the routine. You know what? We've got vacation Bible school coming up in a week because it's that time of year where you do vacation Bible school. But if we're just doing things through routine, then we're not doing through things through love and passion. And I've allowed Satan to kind of beat me down on this thing. Okay, you know, I don't know if we're going to have a whole lot of kids. I mean, I, I've had more people tell me they're going on vacation than are going to be here. <laughs> and God has to remind my heart to not be so worldly. Would it really matter if, if the pastor's kids and some of the deacon's kids and, and other kids showed up that are already here at church and they grew in their faith and they were transformed in an awakening moment? Would, would, would that not be a successful vacation Bible school? Would it not be a successful vacation Bible school if we had 10 kids and all we needed is Mrs. Hurchin to walk them around from group to group and we had all of our stations set, but we only need one leader, but we had 10 kids and of all 10 kids, one of them had never accepted Jesus Christ, but they did. Would that not be successful? I'll admit my temptation, my, my struggle every single Sunday since summer started is like, man, where is everybody? And then God has reminded me, look, two or more meat. Or two or more me. See, Jesus Christ comes to all these churches and he doesn't look at their budget. He doesn't look at their building. He doesn't look at how many they have in attendance. He looks at the heart of the church. And the heart of Ephesus had some good things, but they had some bad things. So you're visiting here this morning. Here's the thing you know. There's no such thing as a perfect church. But some good things and bad things. And what he's doing is he's calling them to remember from where you've fallen. Remember the grace and the mercy and, and that gift. Remember from where you've fallen. Remember that you're sinners. Repent. That word repent, it means that you need to take personal responsibility to the situation, the place you are in at this current moment in time. That's what repent means. I can't repent if I don't take personal responsibility to where I am at this moment if it's not in the will of God. That's not, I can say I'm sorry to God and please forgive me, but that's not repentance. 
Repentance means I take personal responsibility and I make a 180 and I change directions from where I'm going. Now I'm going towards God. And, and Jesus says you need to remember, you need to repent, and then you need to do. You need to react. The beauty of this church, though, wasn't perfect, perfect is the grace of God and the grace of Jesus Christ comes to it and calls out to it to return, repent, and now do the works of love. Do the works that proclaim Jesus Christ. Do the works that proclaim the holiness and the grace and the mercy of God. And not you. I don't know where we all are this morning. I, I don't, I'll be honest, I mean, we're coming up on two years. We're coming up on a year and a half anniversary for that passive search committee, so we may have a trip coming up. I'm just throwing it out there. But um, I'm still learning the heart of Harvest Hill, and we, I know we have this heartbeat, but I mean the heart of Harvest Hill. I'm still learning you, and confession time, I'm still learning some of y'all names, so, so I'm sorry. Um, what I know is God has led us to look at these seven churches, not to compare and contrast if we're doing better or worse, but for God to call us out and say, okay, are we doing all the things, but forgetting about the one thing we need to be focused on? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love others as you love yourself. We're doing all the things, but forgetting the one thing we need to be focused on. And I want to flip that question on us individually. And our families. Are we doing all the things? Filling all the calendar dates. Doing all the busy work. We're doing all the things, but we're forgetting the one thing we should really be focused on. See, if my relationship with God is not right, then every other relationship I have, whether that's with my wife, or my kids, my workplace, my money, is going to be off. But when I get that relationship right, then everything begins falling in place. Have you abandoned your first love? Maybe this is your prayer this morning. It comes out of Psalm chapter 51, 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. It's not my salvation. It's yours. You gave it to me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And this is the promise of Scripture, verse 7 of chapter 2. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's how we know it's not just directed here to Ephesus. To the churches. That, that phrase is going to be in every single church, has an ear, let him hear. It means who, he who has heard the word of God and has understood the word of God now calls to response because the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life should take us back to Genesis chapter 2 and 3, where sin came into the world. Man was disobedient, and God put guard upon the tree that man would no longer be able to go to that tree. And now Jesus says, you know what? If you repent, if you return, and you do the works you did at first, the works that were motivated and, 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 and driven by love, God's love for you and your love for God coming out of, if you go back to that place, you will conquer, and I'll give you permission to come to the tree of life, that, that place that was once cut off from you, in the paradise of God. It means access into heaven. This is not a verse speaking about eternal security. Jesus is speaking to this church in Ephesus that if they don't get their act together, he is going to snuff out their light. 
He will not be mocked. And if you go to Ephesus today, there is no church. There is no church. But it says, if you do this, you will conquer and come into the paradise of God. And I love that word paradise. It means pleasure. You'll come into the pleasure of God. That's something God convicted me this week. That I have not been taking pleasure in God in the way I should. And I've allowed Satan to distract me from all these other things. And this week, man, I just I was just in this thing. <laughs> and it tasted so good. Where are you this morning? Where are we as a church? Maybe you're here this morning and what you need to do is hear the invitation that God has given you so you can actually enter into the paradise of God. The Bible says we're all sinners. We all fall short of God's glory, His holiness. We have no right to boast on ourselves. But God loves us so much He sent His only Son to die for our sins and rise again that we might be saved. And the Bible says when I believe that in my heart and confess with my mouth, I will be saved. If you're here this morning and you have to accept Jesus Christ and this promise about conquering and entering to the paradise of God and the tree of life, that promise isn't upon you right now, but it can. So come this time of invitation, I'm going to ask Charlie and I think Mike stepped out for a second and Jason, if they'll come down for this time of invitation and just come down. They're not here because they're holier now. They're here because if you need someone to talk to and pray with, maybe you have a question, they'll be here. And they'll answer that question, Maybe. But they'll definitely pray for you. Maybe here this morning, you know, you know, I, I've just been going through the motions with God. I've been going through all the Bible studies, and I've been reading all the Bible books, and I've been reading books about the Bible and listening to music about the Bible. But I've just been going through the motions. And I've lost or abandoned my first love. Maybe you need to come before the Father and just repent and, and confess that to Him and, and ask Him to stir your heart that you would fall head over heels in love with Him again. The gates of hell should not prevail against the church. What a powerful word. Let's pray together. Now Jason and, my, and Charlie come on. Father, thank you for this day. And thank you for loving us. Thank you for taking care of us. Thank you for giving us your word. Sometimes it's hard to hear. But Lord, I pray that in this moment, it's time that we respond appropriate to that. Father, I thank you for revealing me, not allowing me to preach this message without you first convicting my heart revealing that I'm a child of yours, that you disciplined me, that you've awakened my eyes to see that um, I can go through the motions and I can measure things based upon the world's standards and, and I can get disappointed because I don't think it goes the way I think it should go. But Father, to you alone be the glory, for you alone are worthy of it. So let my eyes look to you, let my heart be tuned to you. And Father, I pray that for our Harvest Hill, your church, I pray that for every individual here, Father, you know our hearts. You walked amongst us today. You know if our hearts are not right with you. And so, Father, give us the wisdom to know how we need to respond. Father, if there's those here this morning who need to accept you as their Lord and Savior, give them that wisdom. If there's here, those here this morning who are like me this week, who've just been going through the motions, Give them that wisdom. If there's those here this morning that have been allowing people who have titles that do not represent you and are not speaking truth and life into their life, 
Give them the wisdom to cut those things out to protect their hearts and their families. But Father, have your way with us in this moment. As we lift up this song, make it be our prayer. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.